Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. You know what? On second thought, this can't wait. My interview with Glenn Greenwald last Saturday in Ottawa, October 25th, to a pretty packed auditorium organized by a guy named Bill Owen, who I'm very grateful to for asking me to come and interview Glenn. That's what you're going to hear. Glenn Greenwald, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who worked with Edward Snowden on the NSA leaks, just finishes his keynote address in Ottawa, and I sit down with him on stage for an interview, followed by questions from members of the audience. Uh, you know what? I'm just going to leave the questions in, and, and there's a question at the end that makes it all worth it, I think. And so, yeah, uh, of course, I should post this one uh, right now. Uh, we are considering new anti-terrorism laws. We, we had this horrific incident last week. Uh, the climate has already changed around terrorism. This is the time for this conversation. You get into such a bubble with these breaking news stories, and I've been investigating that for months, that you kind of can lose context of what's, what's important. And I would argue that both these things are important for, uh, you know, perhaps very different reasons. And also, like, that's our deal. You get a podcast a week. You get two podcasts a week, starting next week, somehow. Uh, what else can I tell you before we play this? For a little bit of context, you'll hear me get into this with Glenn in the interview. Um, I was starting to get tips. Why don't you poke around a little bit about what the CBC did not report when they were working with Glenn Greenwald? And that led to a kind of a mini investigation, the results of which I posted uh, at CanadaLandShow.com. That article is up now if you want to go have a read, and that will inform what you're about to hear. But if you just want to go ahead and listen to the show now, I, I do explain this in a bit more detail later. 
And to those, I guess, like 50,000 extra people who are checking out the podcast this week, hoping that there's more information on the Gian Gameshi investigation, uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I don't have anything uh, on that right now. Uh, The Toronto Star is a place to keep track of for my work with Kevin Donovan on that. And, uh, you know, why not stick around? Because you came for some Gian Gameshi news and instead uh, hear something about surveillance in Canada with Glenn Greenwald. Uh, Why not? Right. And and uh, and just to get ahead of it, for those of you who feel that there is just a delicious, hilarious irony that the same guy who was involved in investigating Gian Gameshi is also so concerned about surveillance. I appreciate that you find that deliciously ironic and uh, I reject that notion completely. So here it is coming up in a moment. My interview with Glenn Greenwald. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by David Fraser, Connor J, Andrew Kasperzak, Michael Geist, Dave Fingret, Mark Slutsky, Christopher Lackey, Michelle Williams, Gavin Bevan, Nathan Carter-Moore, and Suzanne Duncan. Suzanne, why did you decide to be awesome? Well, you know, you did a really good pitch. It's been a great, great podcast. I listen to it every time it comes out, and I wanted to be involved in something that was a really smart business model and could deliver a whole new idea around what news could be. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars And I I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Thank you. Pour you some water? Sure, thank you. It's true that Canadians were shocked to learn that we were spying on Brazil for industrial purposes. But we were not shocked by the revelations, or we were not shocked enough to learn that we had welcomed the NSA here during the G8 and G20 to spy, 
or that CSEC had been spying at some unnamed airport and elsewhere through Wi-Fi connections. Uh, maybe that's just because we're Canadian and it seems really impolite to spy on Brazil. And, and that's embarrassing to us in a way that our own government, uh, what they're doing here is not. I've heard that theory. Uh, I've heard other theories covering this stuff for a number of years. I've heard that, you know, we're not like Americans who are really adamant about their rights. We're, we're, we're more deferential to power. And that's why the reaction here has been muted. Whereas in the United States, your revelations with Edward Snowden have prompted the president to actually modify whether that's meaningful or not is another question, but actually had to regard this and, and modify. And so we get in this discussion about the Canadian psyche. And I am screaming throughout all of this at the top of my lungs, we don't know as much as they do. They know about Verizon, they know about PRISM, and we don't know in any conclusive terms whether or not our spy agency, whether or not our government is spying on us. And you do know something about that. You know more about what our government is doing and doing in our name and maybe doing to us than anybody in our audience here today. So there are many questions I have for you, but there's no question before this question. Is CSEC spying on Canadians? Well, we've already done stories, um, a story in particular that demonstrates that the answer to that question is yes, and it's the story that you referenced, which is the story of CSEC tracking people who land at international airports in Canada and, and tracking them as they leave and, and use Wi-Fi connections and, and cyber cafes and the like, um, which includes Canadians. Um, I think it's also important to, to understand that there really is no such thing as Canadian spying. Um, Canada spies as part of the Five Eyes Alliance. And this alliance is notable principally because of how indivisible it is. So whatever reporting we've done about the NSA and about GCHQ um, necessarily includes Canada as well. Um, you know, I do think it's important to realize that Edward Snowden was working inside of an American surveillance agency. And so the vast, vast, vast bulk of the documents he took um, were not documents about CSEC. They were documents about the NSA and, and the GCHQ. Um, there already is information uh, about CSEC doing exactly the kind of spying they've long denied, which is spying on Canadians on Canadian soil. Um, and there will be more reporting on, on those questions to come. I mean, the reporting is complicated. Um, you have the responsibility to do it right and to make sure that you're, what you're reporting is accurate. Um, and we're being careful in that regard, but we're also reporting it as, as quickly as we can. And all I can say is there are very significant revelations left to report about Canada. I think that the difference when it comes to what happened with the NSA is that the message to Americans was Verizon, the companies that you communicate through all the time, are indiscriminately spying on massive amounts of people, bulk surveillance. And I think that here we had a situation where people were able to say, well, I don't even know what airport that was. And then we have the government equivocating, oh, it's metadata, and metadata isn't data, it's data about data. And, and then we have CSEC saying, well, it was just an exercise. And then we have the CSEC commissioner saying that no, no laws were broken. So it is highly consequential if information is revealed that makes it undeniable that CSEC is spying on Canadians because they are forbidden by law uh, from doing so. So uh, is there anything you can tell us about whether we can anticipate that kind of revelation? I mean, first of all, what I, what I would tell you um, is that you need your own Edward Snowden. Um, you know, you need a Canadian Edward Snowden um, who is inside of, of CSEC or the Canadian National Security Apparatus and takes the documents that you're eager, understandably, to look at um, and makes them public uh, through journalists or, or through some other way. So I hope that happens. And let me um, just interrupt to say yeah. that if, if you're out there, Canadian Edward Snowden, 
Canadian journalists now come, some of us, with PGP. Right. Jessebrown at gmail.com or whatever um, it is. But, uh, you know, so, so I, I mean, I think that I actually do think that one of the most consequential aspects of, of the Snowden reporting is that he will inspire other people, not just in the U.S., but, but in partner company, uh, countries as well to come forward. Um, I've learned the lesson a long time ago that I'm not going to preview the reporting that we're doing uh, because what ends up happening is if, you, if I sit here and preview reporting and I say, yes, we have documents that show X, Y, and Z, um, from the time that I get back um, to my hotel room until the day that I die, um, I'm going to be deluged with emails and tweets saying, well, where are these documents? Um, on top of which, you go through the reporting process for a reason. You want to make sure that what you're reporting is true. So I'm going to wait for the reporting to happen. All I can tell you is that there, there is, as you know, um, stories in the works um, on those questions, and they'll be reported in good time. You're such a tease. You've been telling us that we have big stuff coming for months and months and months. Months. Uh, can we get a hint? How big? Uh, what's the timeline? Yeah, Anything. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to play, you know, 20 questions. Um, it yeah. just doesn't do any good. <laughs> With all due respect to uh, the process that you go through to report this stuff responsibly, and I can understand, as uh, I think everybody does here, why you would do so, uh, there are other factors that have inhibited your ability to report these stories, and we're not talking about stuff that has to come from a Canadian Edward Snowden, we're talking about stuff that came from Edward Snowden. Uh, and your experience, that which we've talked about, with the Canadian press has been a little troubled. And you uh, described your uh, relationship uh, a furtive relationship with the Globe and Mail as a difficult one, a bad experience that you had with the Globe and Mail, and you talked about a shocking resistance at the CBC uh, for months and months. After a very strong start, when three stories were aggressively reported, it's been crickets since then. And uh, you uh, told me that this has to do, uh, and, and I think we have to get specific here, uh, with a reporter at the CBC who actually was ideologically opposed to reporting this stuff. Right. Do you want to say the name? It's Terry Molesky. So um, <laughs> I let him do the dirty work. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's a mixed bag um, because, as you said, we, we did several stories with the CBC um, with, in cooperation with Greg Weston, who is a fantastic uh, reporter, um, and a couple of editors there who were very aggressive and, and uh, stood really steadfastly behind the story and did not capitulate to government pressure. Um, each of them left. One of them went to become the, the editor-in-chief of, of the Globe and Mail, um, and Greg left as well. And, and subsequent to Greg's leaving, we were given um, a new journalist um, with whom to work. Um, and uh, this individual um, seems to believe that mass surveillance is a good thing, which he's entitled to think, I guess. Um, and that therefore doesn't, he doesn't think it should be reported um, because he believes Canadians want CSEC to be doing these things and, and therefore thinks that, that it shouldn't be reported. And that was the holdup. And, and CC, uh, the CBC has said, you know, we want you to have journalists who are committed to the reporting and, and uh, I feel like we're getting those now. So, um, yeah, there have been problems in the relationship. But let me just say, you know, when, just so, so you understand the process, the documents that we're talking about, that we've reported on around the world, and that we're talking about now, um, are in the eyes of these governments among the most sensitive material they have. Um, because it shows how they invade our privacy on the internet. And they don't want anybody knowing, A, how they do it, or B, that they do it. And so when they know, learn that media outlets are going to report on these documents or publish these documents, they apply extreme amounts of pressure 
to these media organizations to try and bully and intimidate and scare them out of publishing them. They come and they say, if you publish these documents, you are going to help terrorists evade our detection and that will cause the death of innocent people and the blood will be on your hands. Now, good journalists and good editors know that governments say that in every case um, when they want to hide what they're doing. And so you ignore it unless they have something specific. Um, not everyone is a good editor and a good journalist. And some people get really scared by those warnings. Um, and that has held up some of the reporting, not just here in Canada, but in a lot of countries around the world. And in fact, John Stackhouse, the former editor-in-chief of the Globe and Mail, told me that's exactly what CSEC told him, uh, told his office when he was about to, to release the actual documents, uh, that this was a matter of life or death. And that was uh, ultimately revealed to be bullshit. And, and, uh, and, and those documents came out, but by then, public attention had moved on. We're still waiting for that aha moment here. And uh, the ability for the system to sort of correct itself and put things under the rug just today, uh, and I don't want to put everything on Terry Molesky because let's remember, CBC is our public broadcaster and for months and months, Terry was their point of contact with you and nothing was coming out. So I don't know what was happening there. Uh, Terry now says to this uh, information you've given me that he was ideologically opposed, he has suggested very strongly on Twitter that that is bullshit and that uh, the story is bullshit. And can we put that to rest here? Yeah, except I'll just say that, you know, I mean, you can go on Twitter and call a story bullshit. It's not very convincing. I mean, I don't feel a need to refute that. The story is absolutely true. There's, there's evidence for it. Um, and the proof ultimately is in the pudding. The reporting hasn't come. I'll follow you up uh, on the evidence. Um, who are you working with now? I, I realize I've made things really awkward for you in, in Canada since you've been here talking to CBC, who I think have, have trying to kiss and make up with you since what happened. Uh, I'm sorry if I made things weird. Um, but who, who's going to report this stuff with you? No, well, first of all, I mean, you know, I think that, um, you know, I, I think I've spent a long time talking about the role of journalists. And I think the role of journalists um, is to hold people in positions of power and influence accountable. And that includes large media outlets, um, which play a really significant role. So um, yeah, as annoying as you've been the whole week, um, and as uncomfortable as you made things um, from my relationship with other journalists, um, I think you did the, exactly the right thing, and I'm glad you did it. Um, I think the public has a right to know when media outlets are um, being bullied and deterred by the government out of reporting, or if there's other corrupting influences preventing the public from, from knowing. But yeah, we're still working with the Globe and Mail and, and the CBC, and I think the problems have been largely fixed. Um, and so I hope and, and expect there to be really good reporting coming soon. Um, consistent with this idea of holding powerful people accountable, as the person who has, and not the only person, but as a person who has these files, you are a powerful person. And uh, you know, it's unfortunate that some of the other people who have some of these files are not sharing with anyone, and that is shameful. But uh, because you are working with journalists, these questions fall to you, and that's, I suppose, your burden. Um, so I, I do have to ask you some questions to hold you accountable. And, and uh, a question was actually posed uh, by Ron Debert of the Citizen Lab to me, who said, he is puzzled by the process by which you choose journalists to work with, and that it lacks transparency. Um, I won't ask you necessarily to account for that, but uh, you did tell me in a previous conversation that things are changing in terms of how The Intercept and you uh, are, are working, because it is a very slow process, especially when we don't have as rigorous and as uh, 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 you know, uh, robust a press uh, in Canada as we do in the States, where there are so many eyes on this so quickly. If you get into a bad relationship with a media source here, then months can go by. Um, but why don't you tell us as much as you can 
about steps you're taking to make things go a little bit faster? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people who don't really have any idea about what the process actually is often voice opinions nonetheless about what it entails, which I think is a natural thing to do because um, there are a lot of there is a lot of interest in the story, and so people rightly want more documents to come. Um, the, do, the, the the archive that we have is is vast and complex, um, and it pertains to pretty much every country on earth um, in ways that take a long time for even the most technically adept people to process and understand. Other times there are stories that are partially in the archive, but not entirely. Um, and it takes a lot of reporting and a lot of work to piece them together in the right way. Um, I think that the what's really remarkable is how many documents we've been able to disclose um, around the world um, in the time that we've been able to do it, um, especially since we have a duty to our, not just the, the public to, to make sure what we're reporting is correct so we're not misleading people, but also to our source who, you know, if Edward Snowden wanted just a really fast and indiscriminate publication of these documents, he wouldn't have needed to come to me. He could have just uploaded it to the internet himself. Um, he came to us and specifically said, I want you meticulously to vet the material um, and to make sure that every story that's published is in the public interest and doesn't risk innocent lives. And that is a burden I take very seriously, both as a journalist and in my obligation to my source. But we do feel an obligation to get the stories reported more quickly. And so one of the things we're doing, I mean, there are, as you said, big media outlets like the New York Times and the Guardian and the Washington Post who have tens of thousands of documents. And they're just going to hold on to those documents. And, and maybe one day they'll report them and, and maybe one day they won't. What we're doing is we want to put the story ahead of our own um, competitive interest or our own proprietary interest over the documents. So we've created a system um, in New York that's almost ready where journalists from around the world are going to be able to come and work directly with the entire Snowden archive um, so that we substantially maximize the number of journalists who are able to work with it and find stories with it and do reporting. And we think that'll expedite the, the reporting process um, by letting media outlets have at it. Um, and we think it'll make the reporting a lot better as well. And just so people can visualize this, this is sort of like a human-sized uh, mini-fridge where people uh, cannot download files or make copies of them, but they can come in. It's like a library where journalists who meet your vetting process will be able to come and access the files. Correct. Uh-huh. Um, and, and this is going to be debuted soon. Pardon? This is coming in. This is almost ready, you say? Almost ready. Correct. Okay. Um, the word burden comes up a lot, and uh, I can't imagine how your life must have changed uh, and, and the incredible pressures on you, and you're a new kind of journalist. You are not an institution, uh, though I understand The Intercept is, is, is building some, inter, uh, some institutional uh, facilities, but you're one guy who has become the magnet for, I mean, 22 countries you've been in partnership with to report this stuff, all the stuff that isn't known yet. Uh, does it feel like a burden, and are you ready for it to be off your shoulders? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the, the, the sense, it, sure, it is a burden when, um, I mean, it has a lot, there's a lot of responsibility to being a principal guardian of how this material gets distributed to the world. Um, you do have the responsibility to make certain that material that might endanger people's lives um, is reported responsibly. Um, but then you also have this corresponding burden to make sure the material gets out quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have a burden to your, or a duty to your source to make sure that the process goes in accordance with the way he asked it to, to be conducted and that you agree to. Um, on top of which, there's all kinds of pressures and threats that come from doing 
reporting like this. Um, you know, there was a long time when I couldn't travel back to the United States because the government was continuously threatening to to arrest us. Um, they detained my partner, and there's still a criminal investigation pending in the UK over that. Um, you get attacked and criticized in lots of different ways. But, you know, you go into journalism to do a story like this. And I've been working on these issues for a long time, and so the ability to have... First of all, the evidence, finally, to show that all of this stuff that I've been saying and other people have been saying about the surveillance state actually is true, and you can see the evidence for it now. We can kick a huge hole in the wall of secrecy behind which they've been functioning. Um, is incredibly gratifying. Uh, the platform that I have to go around talking about these issues on which I've been working um, is, is really valuable to me. Um, and so, yeah, it's been burdened, it's been costly, but you know, journalists around the world have burdens with all kinds of things that they do. Um, it's just the nature of good journalism. I mean, if you say you want to challenge people who wield power, the nature of doing that is that they can do things to you um, because of the way you're defying or challenging them. That's just intrinsic to the process. And if you're not prepared to accept that, then journalism is probably not the thing that you should do. And yet, uh, I can, can almost watch before our eyes the process from which, by which you become sort of a suspected of treason and decried and your character assassinated and you're a criminal. And then slowly, slowly, uh, there's, the stories bear out. And there's a legitimization that happens, and there's the Pulitzer Prize, and then you come to Canada, and all of our top journalists welcome you with, uh, with open arms. And well, not all, but... Not all. Yeah. But you're almost becoming respectable. I know, it's scary. What do you plan um, to do about me, that? Yeah, I know. It, it's, uh, you know, I, it was funny. I, I, did the, I was invited to do the Monk debates um, here in Toronto, I guess, six months ago. You're fancy. And, uh, yeah, it's very high-end. Um, and... I, I was, the, the, the two people I was debating were um, Alan Dershowitz, um, precisely, and uh, General Michael Hayden, who was the director of the CIA and the NSA under the Bush administration. Um, and I gave an interview to a Canadian-based journalist in Brazil who worked for the Globe and Mail, Stephanie Nolan, on the day before I left for Toronto to go and do the debate. And I was talking about this serious crisis of conscience I was having, which is that when you get invited to these kind of events, um, you're expected to be, like, very civil. You know, like, before the debate, they have this cocktail party and this, like, chandeliered room, and, you know, you're supposed to, like, shake hands with your adversaries and treat them like, you know, respected opponents or whatever. And I, like, I don't have any respect for Alan Dershowitz or Michael Hayden. Um, I... <laughs> You know, um, I mean, Michael Hayden is, you know, he's, he's a war criminal. I mean, he belongs in The Hague. I mean, truly, like, he implemented a system of torture. Um, and so it does bring up those kinds of, of conflicts. You know, I, I um, you know, I, I actually, it was funny, I gave this quote to her where I said, I, I'm having a hard time shaking either of their hands because I actually consider them to be two of the most pernicious people on the planet. And the Globe and Mail took this huge profile of me on one page and Michael Hayden on the other, and the quote of mine that they put in the headline was, I'm debating two of the most pernicious people on the planet. Um, but, and, and I didn't shake hands with them, and I didn't speak to them, um, and, you know, but you do get that conflict. I mean, you want to maintain your outsider status, and there's all these temptations when you do start getting invited into these kind of regal halls um, where it's expected that you're supposed to change your behavior in, in exchange for getting admission to these clubs. And, and I, that's the process of co-option. Um, and, and even if you're committed to resisting it, it, it's a very potent process. And so I think about that all the time.
Hasn't been a problem yet, but I'll look out for that personally. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to take one question that came from our partners at Open Media that was submitted to their Facebook page, and then if people who have questions can start to line up, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll turn this into a bit more of a conversation with you. Um, Ian O'Sullivan uh, asked a question that I'm, uh, I'd love to ask you. Uh, why doesn't Snowden use Facebook? He would, he would be huge on social media, so why isn't Snowden on, uh, on any of the platforms? Well, I mean, he doesn't use Facebook because he hates Facebook. Um, I mean, they're like one of the worst violators of, of privacy, you know, in history. Um, that would be really weird. Nobody should use Facebook. Um, but I have actually encouraged him um, to use Twitter um, as a means of um, having a platform. Um, where he can speak, and um, the reality is, is that he has one of the, the really interesting things about the way he's been able to construct his life is, you know, in, a, in the United States, the word Russia like sends people into these seizures of hysteria still, as though like it's 1958. It's always 1958 in the United States when it comes to Russia, and people say, oh, he's in Russia, which means like he's condemned to this life of dankness and dark misery. Um, and you know, the reality is, is that we thought he was going to end up in an American prison for the rest of his life. Um, and although he didn't choose Russia, being there has enabled him to, you know, do interviews and give speeches and make appearances and write columns. And he's become a really important voice in the debate that he helped to catalyze. Um, so he, he's really happy. And, and there may be one day when, when he ends up on Twitter. It seems like he should be out uh, and, and mixing it up with everybody a little bit more than he is. Well, it's a little bit difficult when you actually can't leave the country and when the world's most powerful government considers you the number one fugitive. You've got to be a little bit careful about where you go and what you do. Sure. Um, so he tends to live his life online, which, you know, actually before all this happened, before anyone knew Edward Snowden is, is what he did anyway. Um, so it hasn't changed all that much for him. Yes. Uh, so we'll get to as, mu as much of this as we can. I, I have a feeling we're not going to be able to get to all the questions tonight, but everyone, please keep your questions brief and uh, make sure that they are, in fact, questions. Uh, to the gentleman here. Hi, Glenn. Uh, a lot of Americans I know seem to have drawn a distinction between stories about the government spying on them, which was intensely debatable, uh, and stories about Americans, uh, the American agency spying on other governments, which they kind of expected was happening and they kind of wanted to see happen. And I wonder if you draw a distinction between those two things and, and how you draw that distinction. Yeah, I think, the rel I think there's, you know, you can kind of look at the stories in four broad categories. So there's stories about NSA spying on its own citizens. Then there are stories about the NSA spying on foreign populations indiscriminately, putting entire populations under a surveillance microscope. Then there are stories about the NSA spying on friendly governments, like the president of Brazil or the president of, of the chancellor of Germany. And then there are stories about the NSA spying on adversarial countries, like China or Iran or Pakistan. Um, there is this sense in the United States, unsurprisingly, that the only legitimate stories are the ones about the NSA spying on their own citizens, on Americans. And we have done a lot of reporting about the NSA spying on foreign populations. And Snowden was once asked about this, and I say all the time, um, the idea that the only privacy that matters is the privacy of Americans and that the rest of the world, which, by the way, happens to be 95% of the world that's not American, um, that their privacy is irrelevant, in fact, so irrelevant that it shouldn't even be reported on, is actually grotesque. 
Um, and Snowden was adamant from the start that he regarded internet privacy as being the privacy of individuals around the world, regardless of nationality, to use the internet without um, monitoring an invasion. The debate over the legitimacy of spying on other governments, I think, is a valid one. Um, I do think that um, the, 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 the stories about spying on democratically elected leaders of allied countries um, has been uh, significant because a lot of people don't think the NSA should be doing that or any government should be doing that, but that's debatable. Um, I've pretty much have stayed away from stories about the US government spying on adversary governments because that, I don't think, is all that interesting. There's been reporting on that for years and I don't think that surprises anybody. So that's sort of how I evaluate the, the categories. Thank you. Next question. Hi. So you, uh, you spoke a little bit about how intelligence agencies are to some degree insulated from the exercise of democracy simply because people are just not made aware. Um, I mean, short of waiting for somebody to come along and leak documents, uh, how do you suggest that we go about establishing meaningful public oversight over a runaway intelligence community? Well, I do think, I do think public awareness is the prerequisite. And one of the things that has happened in the United States um, is that there have always been certain avenues that have existed for information to get to the public that the government doesn't want to get to the public. And there has been really a war on those avenues. In particular, I'll give you an example, um, just a statistic. Under President Obama, um, there have been now seven prosecutions of whistleblowers or sources, people who give information to journalists that the government doesn't want out, under this 1917 statute called the Espionage Act, which was designed to criminalize dissent during World War I. In all of American history prior to President Obama, there were a grand total of three cases, three prosecutions. So he has more than doubled the number just in his six years of these kind of prosecutions um, as compared to every other president prior to him combined. What this is about is about trying to shut off every valve that exists for any information to get to the public other than the information that the government chooses to get to the public. And information, if you live in a state where the only information that gets to the public is information that the government chooses to get to the public, you live in a state of propaganda by definition. That's what it is. So when you say other than people leaking documents or whistleblowers, what can be done? I don't think anything can be done other than whistleblowers and, and unauthorized disclosures. There may be other ways to do it. Um, you know, not everybody who leaks to journalists does it by taking tens of thousands of top secret documents and handing them over on a thumb drive in Hong Kong. I mean, sometimes people just call up a reporter and give tidbits of information. Um, but this is a really crucial process um, to save democracy. I mean, we have to know what our government is doing beyond what they want us to know um, in order to have democracy be meaningful. And that's why I think defense of whistleblowers um, and this process of, of disclosure is, is so critical. Thanks very much. Yes, hello. Uh, I would like to begin by saluting your courage and your intellectual honesty. Thank you. And I'd also like to salute the absolute humiliation you inflicted on the vulgar uh, Zionist propagandist and Islamophobe Bill Maher on his show, Real Time. I may be... I may, I may be using harsh words when referring to Bill Maher, but this is what I think of him. I don't know what you think of him. I'd like to know what you think of him. I concur with your description. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I'd also like to know that uh, an individual such as him who presents himself as a liberal and as a progressive uh, the kind of, uh, and yet shares uh, many of the similar views on American foreign policies as the right-wing pundits in the United States. 
I'd like to know uh, what kind of influence an individual like him has or how does he resonate within the liberal class in the U.S. if there is such a thing? Um, yeah, it's a really good and, but also a complicated question. Um, there was this article uh, today in the Boston Globe by this author who has a new book. The principal point of which was that it doesn't matter who wins elections. The national security state will continue to get its way exactly as they want, no matter who wins. And I know from having gone all over the world, speaking and doing reporting on the NSA file, by far the biggest kind of uh, question that people ask, and it's not even a question at this point, it's more a realization is, you know, people around the world, everywhere, um, for a long time, loved President Obama because they viewed him as this vehicle for fundamental change from all the things that they thought that had gone wrong with the United States and its behavior in the world. And not just from spying, but from um, the escalation of drones to the escalation of militarism to just the general face of the United States, people around the world now see that not only has there been no radical change, there's been almost none. And in a lot of cases, it's even gotten worse. And the point of all this, I think, that, that uh, to that realization is that there is almost a full-scale consensus um, in the American political class, both on the right and the left, um, about the propriety of these policies and the way in which the U.S. has been conducting itself in the world. So that you even have so-called liberals like Bill Maher, or there's like this new class of, they call themselves new atheists, they're supposedly um, these, these, they're these white Westerners who fantasize about how they're going to lead Muslims out of the bondage of Islam um, in the name of liberal values and the like, um, who spend almost all of their time railing against the evils of Muslims um, in exactly the way, say, followers of Dick Cheney would. Um, and so you have this kind of convergence of conservatism and liberalism in the United States that very much supports um, this posture of endless war and all of the policies that enable and support it. And I mean, if you look at, for example, Hillary Clinton, who I think most people agree will probably be the next president, she wrote a book um, pretty harshly criticizing President Obama. And she didn't criticize him for bombing too many Muslim countries. She bombed him, she criticized him for not bombing enough. Um, and almost all of her criticisms of him were that he was too. Uh, dovish and too um, peace-oriented and not being willing enough to use violence in that part of the world or not steadfastly supporting Israel. So there's this consensus. Um, you shouldn't be fooled by Democrat versus Republican or conservative versus liberal. You're absolutely right. They share this common theme. And I don't think Bill Maher himself is influential. I just think he's mouthing the kind of ethos into which he's connected. Thanks very much. I'm really, really nervous. I like looked through the room like a dozen times to make sure that no one I know is here. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, first, also, John Cook used to follow me on Twitter, and I think I had him convinced for a long time that um, he was going to be charged for extortion for his involvement with uh, the crack video. <laughs> so if you tell, see him, just tell him I say hi. And Does he still the, follow you, or did he block you? No, no, you? He, fi he eventually unfollowed, but only, probably just because I talk, like, tweet mostly about girly stuff. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, so I was working on Karen McCribbin's liberal leadership campaign. She ran against Justin Trudeau, and, which I tweeted you about, but I'm not sure if you got a chance to read it, because um, it was a lot of really disjointed. But, um, and I won't go into all the details of it, but basically she worked in over 70 different countries. Um, she had worked on 
dozens of uh, classified missions. She worked at NATO, and we just could not get her any press in Canada at all. It was like a Trudeau machine, and it was the most devastating thing I've ever been a part of because she put up $80,000 of her own money to try and run it um, up against Trudeau, and if we could have just got out the March 3rd deadline, we might have actually had a shot at pulling in maybe uh, people who would have voted conservative to vote for her. Anyways, um, while I was working on her video, uh, my, I got my video editing software was hacked and it ended up being hacked by a Chinese <laughs> I'm still not sure if where, if it was Chinese government or it was Chinese IP address or like it was a Chinese IP address and that's all I know so far right now and I still haven't turned the hard drive over to the RCMP because I don't know if I should yet um, but long story short I'm now actually on bail for harassment for so, something totally unrelated so I guess my, my question is uh, who do you think spies more the police, domestic police, because um, in my, my trial's actually coming up in January and I'm going to find out a lot more, but I actually found out that some of the stuff they did, even in my case, since the Supreme Court has now ruled that you're not supposed to be um, uh, getting IP addresses directly from the service providers, um, like, yeah, I guess in your experience, have you found that the police themselves, domestic police themselves, are more pervasive in terms of their spy techniques or the uh, federal levels or national levels? You know, it actually, um, thank you, I mean, for that question because it provokes a, 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 what I think is a really important and underappreciated development, which is, you know, people who have been writing about and talking about what we call the war on terror for a decade or so have been mostly condemning certain kinds of abuses that have been perpetrated by the U.S. and its allies in other distant parts of the world aimed at foreign populations. And one of the things that you see um, very kind of rapidly now is the importation of a lot of these, what were war on terror policies, into how the government interacts with its own citizenry domestically, um, at least certainly in the United States. So if you look, for example, at the NSA's um, mass surveillance program, that was actually a, a program that was pioneered in Baghdad, aimed at an enemy population that was then brought onto U.S. soil. If you look at drones, which were once flown exclusively over places like Yemen and Somalia, police departments in the United States, and actually I believe in Canada as well, are now using drones for surveillance. Um, you saw that protest in Ferguson, Missouri over police brutality where Americans were shocked because there were these tanks on the street. That's paramilitarization. What used to, the kind of force that, that uh, American police departments used to use or that militaries used to use against foreign populations are now being used against the civilian population. Once you start to endorse this mindset that certain kinds of policies are acceptable, aimed at bad people, it's almost inevitably the case that it will be brought into the domestic realm. So if you endorse the idea that agencies can go around the world invading people's privacy and spying on them at will to stop bad people from doing bad things, there's no reason why that will ultimately not be brought into your own country and aimed at your, your own domestic population. And I think you see that on, on almost every realm of, of the war on terror. Thank you. Um, I think we have, uh, we, we have to be out at a certain point, so we're going to take two more questions. Uh, so to the, the next two people, and to the rest of you, I'm, I apologize, but Bill Owen will tell you, Glenn's pretty good uh, as, uh, in terms of uh, following up with people. It's pretty accessible. Um, so, yes, please. Yeah, hi. Um, during the um, 
Wednesday attacks, I walked all around Ottawa, downtown, you know, as far as I could, as close as I could get along the police lines and so on. Um, stuck around most of the day, and um, about two in the morning, I did a selfie which is a selfie video, and I was talking about misguided fear, terrorism versus climate change, because climate change is the issue that people, if people understood the threats as much as the scientific community is starting to, um, they would realize that um, climate change is the issue that is not going to go away, and uh, the extreme weather events that are causing six million dollars or billion dollars of damage in Calgary, a billion in Toronto, you know, this is only going to get more frequent, more extreme. So, could you um, search through your files on climate change and release all that information sooner than, than later? Um, <laughs> Your files, your files you, you're getting a, a little taste of what my life has been like for 16 months. You have over here somebody demanding that I release files on one topic and then somebody over here demanding I release them on a completely different topic. Um, we have done some reporting on, on, on climate change, including uh, spying on, on climate conferences where countries got together to negotiate um, accord. But you know, I, I would say two things. Um, one is I think it's important to, to, to understand um, and I realize the temptation is to just close your eyes and fantasize about what you wish would come in the world and then assume that I have it and then just that I can release it at any moment. Um, but, you know, Edward Snowden worked in one particular agency of the U.S. government in one part of that agency and, and was taking documents illicitly. Um, you know, he had to take them where he could get them. And, and so um, he took a lot, but he didn't take documents on, on every topic. Um, and, and, you know, I, can, I, I guess all I can tell you is if there were documents that were relevant on, on climate change, they would have been reported on already. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, I think we should be careful about um, ever saying this is the uh, issue. Um, because there's short-term harms and, and there's long-term harms and how you weigh, you know, pervasive starvation um, or child um, children suffering from lethal diseases that are curable um, against climate change, I think, is, is difficult. But, but I agree with your, your, core, your core point completely, which is that human beings are very bad at evaluating risk. Um, I know, you know people in the United States, I know them personally, I mean, who like walk around petrified about the terrorism threat, and yet they text all their friends while they're driving. And it's like, you know what, that is so much more likely to kill you um, than, than terrorism, but you know, I think one of the things that you see, and I think you see it this week, and I, I tried talking about this a little bit with a couple of people in Canada, and it's hard to talk about, but um, we are tribal creatures, and what terrorism does is it, it, it triggers this tribal instinct in us, which is that we collectively, our group, have been attacked. And, you know, I think that's why you see lots of Canadians who are very well-intentioned and not at all giving into hysteria, nonetheless doing things like waving Canadian flags and talking about it like it's an attack on democracy. It's the reason why terrorism is so susceptible to being manipulated because it's this othering process. There are these other people who are outside of our society, who are different from us, who have attacked us collectively. And that's a really powerful instinct that we as human beings have for all kinds of evolutionary reasons. And, and that's why we respond to it more than, say, the distant and scientific threat of climate change, even though, from every metric, rationally, climate change, climate change is much, much 
more threatening. Um, and I think that's exactly the kind of thing that we have to guard against, is, is this kind of deliberate manip manipulation of the makeup of our instinct and, and emotional constitution, um, because that is how we get led to evaluating the world irrationally. And I think you see that this week. Thanks very much. Last question. Uh, it's a pleasure to be able to ask you a question. Glenn Greenwald, I've been following your work ever since uh, Snowden, um, shortly after he arrived in Hong Kong. My question actually is about love. Um, one of the things I found remarkable in reading over some of Snowden's statements, I think um, in the Guardian article called I Spy in particular, he talks about love. He says, I don't want to live in a world where we can't express love, creativity, and have relationships online. And this struck me as really out of place coming from a person who is very intellectual, very brainy, and very nerdy, and who talks about encryption a lot and uses a lot of abstract terms to talk about what he's doing. He doesn't very often get to the heart of things. But this sort of struck me as being the heart of his motivation. And I wonder if maybe you could just say a few words about that. I know it moves a long way from the political, but I think it's at the heart of our political relationships with each other is uh, our relationships, our friendships, our ability to be creative in the public sphere to do what we're doing right now. Um, you know, that is, yeah, yeah. That is, um, you know, I think it's profound and I also think it's incredibly insightful about Snowden's motivations um, in a way that's not easy to apprehend. And, I mean, that is, that is a fascinating topic to me, and I'll just, for the moment, say that I just, I gave a TED Talk, um, I think a month ago in, in Brazil, um, which you can find online really easily, where I talked about um, this, this idea that um, if you're not one of the bad people, the people plotting terrorist attacks or engaging in violent crimes, if you're instead a good person, like a person who goes to work and comes home and raises your kid and kids and watches TV, that you're not doing bad things and therefore you don't have anything to hide and therefore don't really care if the government is invading your privacy because you don't actually think they're really interested in what it is that you're doing. And, and I, I talked about the critical central role that privacy plays in the lives of all of us um, and not just people who are doing bad things like committing terrorism and the like. And when I was in Hong Kong, um, as I said earlier, it was critical for me to understand the motive that led Snowden to do what he did because I wanted to make certain that I wasn't participating in unraveling somebody's life who hadn't given extremely careful and deep thought to why this was worth doing. And I asked him many, many times over the course of hours and then days for this explanation. Why was this worth it to him? I mean, he had a very stable life. He had a girlfriend who loved him. He had a lucrative career. He had a family that was supportive, a, a, a great life in Hawaii. Why was he willing to throw this all away in, in pursuit of this abstract political ideal? And he gave me a lot of answers that weren't quite persuasive to me until he talked about what you just raised, which is he said that growing up the way he grew up, which was pretty poor, he didn't even finish high school. Um, he grew up in this very cloistered suburb in Northern Virginia near the kind of military industrial complex that he had a very kind of narrow world. And the internet is what let him explore not only the world, but other people and ultimately himself. He could 
speak to people around the world with whom he would never otherwise communicate. He could experiment with ideas that he would never be willing to express if it were attached to his name. He would try out different personalities and identities, um, all of which was possible exclusively because he was able to do it in a realm of privacy. And he said he didn't want to live in a world where that was lost. He wasn't willing to live in that world. And the reason that was so important to him, and it's something that I've given so much thought about over the last year and a half, is because as human beings, and there's all kinds of scientific studies that demonstrate this to be true, but I think our own human experience proves it even more. When we think that we're being watched, our behavior changes radically. We become much more conformist, we become much more compliant, we make choices that are the byproduct not of our own agency, but of the expectations and mandates of social orthodoxy and convention. Um, and it's really only in this private realm where we can explore intimacy and, as you say, love and um, friendship and different ways of thinking and being and creativity and dissent. It all exclusively re re resides in this realm of privacy where we can act without other eyes being cast upon us and making judgments. And that is something that was crucial to Snowden's evolution as a person, the ability to have this private realm online where so many people, especially younger ones, don't just buy books and make travel reservations, but develop who they are as people and make human connections. Um, all of that is severely crippled if not completely destroyed when we live in a world of mass surveillance where, where the internet is converted into a place where we can always be watched and monitored. And you're, that's what makes what you said so insightful is, yeah, he talks about encryption and he talks about um, surveillance technologies, but ultimately it was a deeply human um, perspective that drove him to do what he did, deeply noble and selfless, because he wanted these connections that can be made exclusively in a world where there's privacy to continue to flourish, and he knew that's what was being destroyed. And, and that, more than anything, I think, is what drove him to do what he did. So, excellent observations. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. Well, I can't think of a better place to leave it than there. On, on behalf of, uh, of this audience, uh, and I, I think I'm going to go ahead and say on behalf of Canadians, I want to thank you not just for being here, but for shocking us into awareness. And I'm going to speak on behalf of Canadian journalists, and they won't like that, but I, I want to thank you for challenging us to reinvigorate ourselves and rediscover our courage and our purpose in this country. Uh, Glenn Greenwald, thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Good night, everybody. That's your Canada Land podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at jesse at jessebrown.ca. I read them all. I respond when I can. I am on Twitter at Jesse Brown. The website for this show is at canadalandshow.com and the crowdfunding campaign lives at patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Christopher DeMello and we will have another episode up on Monday. If you like this show, support it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. 
This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.